Hello, my name is Philip van Kapf. I'm a member of the fifth board of the European Union Intellectual Property Office, EUIPO, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 133 of IP Fridays. My co-host Ken Suzanne and I are glad that you tuned in. I have to apologize for last month. We didn't post an episode. We had a last minute difficulty with scheduling an interview. Today's interview guest is Philip von Kapf, who has been a long-standing member of the Boards of Appeal of the EU IPO. So we will talk about trademarks today. We talk about metaverse trademarks, about evergreening of trademarks and much more. But before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. A blockchain-based software company Veritas Seum Capital has filed a patent infringement lawsuit against Coinbase at the Federal Court in Delaware and they are asking for damages in the order of 350 million US dollars. Coca-Cola had to change the design of their bottles in the UK after passing away of Elizabeth II because of the royal warrant seal on the bottles. Coca-Cola is one of about 800 companies that have to change their design. The companies now have two years to remove the seal from the packaging and to apply for a new seal with King Charles III. The Swiss Competition Commission, COMCO, has opened an investigation of Novartis over possible unlawful use of a patent to reduce competitive pressure. The Swiss Competition Commission conducted an early morning raid on the company on September 13. The EU IPO has published the third edition of the Intellectual Property SME scoreboard and they show that 93% of small and medium-sized companies see a positive impact when they own IP rights. So now let's jump into the interview with Philip von Kapf of the Boards of Appeal of the EU IPO. Today's interview guest is Philip von Kapf. If you don't know Philip, he is a member of the Boards of Appeal of the EU IPO. Before that, he became a licensed attorney in Germany and France, and he has been joining the EU IPO in 1998. And he joined the uh, Boards of Appeal in 2001 and became a member in 2006. So thank you very much for being on the show, Philip. Thank you very much for inviting me. So you are the one of the longest serving members of the Boards of Appeal at the UIPO, and you have been following and influencing the case law for a long time now. Mm-hmm. The UIPO and especially mm-hmm. the Boards of Appeal started a new effort for consistency of the case law and at the same time preserving the independence of the Boards of Appeal. Today, we'll talk about lots of different topics like evergreening of trademarks, proof of use, the scope of appeals, the metaverse trademarks, and much more. 
However, first let's talk about how the boards of appeal plan to strive for consistency of the case law while preserving the independence of the boards. What is your take? Thank you for this interesting question. We are independent. The members of the boards of appeal are independent in their decisions and they're not bound by any instructions. Uh, and therefore as well today, I will only express my own personal view. I may not bind the boards of appeal and not the office, obviously, in my opinions. Coherence is not incompatible with independence. And we know that our user wants us to be coherent. Uh, not always possible to be coherent, but we have come up with different instruments to strive for coherence. One of the instruments is the grand board. We try to take decisions to the grand board which uh, show where in which we try to solve a case law that might be that may be incoherent within the boards or even within the general court or with respect to decisions of the court of justice we have thousands of decisions every year another further problem so the grand board is there is there to help us to settle uh, different opinions about for example procedural questions or as to the substance. My, myself, I've been rapporteur in a number of cases before the grand board, which are part still ongoing. We may come back to them later. We have further uh, working groups in the office and the boards of appeal, where we try to reflect the different tendencies which may exist for certain questions. I don't know how to, act, how to assess uh, public policy and principles of morality how to act with respect to distinctiveness of slogans. We call this consistency reports. You may find them on the website of the office. If you go to, if you go to the website of the office, you will see on the right side an image where um, you can look for the structure of the office. Uh, there you can go to the boards of appeal or as well under practice of the office, uh, boards of appeal, you may find a list of the ongoing and closed grand board cases. I think these reports and these cases are interesting. The grand board obviously uh, manages to harmonize the case law of the boards normally. It's not easy to work in a grand board because the grand board on, only uh, consists of nine members, all the chairpersons plus. Uh, members to have a total number of nine. And you can imagine there is this old saying, no? nine lawyers, 20 opinions. And this we see in the grand board as well, because obviously we don't take the easy cases to the grand board. And we have an ambition, ambitious action plan. The president of the boards of appeal, Joao Negrao, has a very ambitious action plan in which he wants to harmonize and to be consistent, to, to strive for consistency, not only within the boards of appeal, but also in respect to the first instance. And then if possible as well, to try to harmonize, uh, to have an agreement with other bodies that are similar to us, like boards of appeal of national offices. And we have a whole lot of initiatives in that area. The working for the EUIPO and working on the Boards of Appeal is something dynamic, and I'm very proud of that. So these are three initiatives that we have taken with respect to the consistency. There are others, but these three are already quite impressive. 
these are the most important, let's say. So let's uh, talk about one topic that a lot of people are interested in, proof of use. Um, proof oh, of use uh, for trademarks is one of the most uh, important and discussed topics for trademark practitioners. Um, and the ECJ has the European Court of Justice has recently ruled in the Testarossa case that sports cars are not a valid subcategory of the good land vehicles and parts thereof. And uh, what do you think about this decision? And can you briefly explain how this decision differs from the previous case law of the boards of appeal? You understand this Testarossa case was a preliminary ruling, a question asked by the uh, appeal court of Düsseldorf, uh, who asked, who had a case on the famous trademark Testarossa, which has not been produced since 1990 anymore, and which is only on the market for um, used cars, second-hand cars. There were a number of interesting questions Uh, that were raised in that uh, by that court, which were addressed to the Court of Justice, and um, which the Court of Justice in more or, more or less uh, great detail uh, solved in its judgment. There is another parallel case pending before the Grand Board of Appeal, now pending before the Fifth Board of Appeal, of which I'm a rapporteur, so I will not be able to uh, discuss any issues which may relate to the individual case, but obviously can talk about certain aspects of the reasoning of the Court of Justice, in particular with respect to the question of subcategories of broad notions and proof of use, which in my opinion is something of the most complex we have to do. We don't have so many oral hearings. We don't meet with the, with the parties. Um, we don't know the marketplace, and we need to decide about proof of use for specifications, which may be very broad, and where we may not know the market. Um, so this is quite uh, challenging. Uh, in this Testarossa case, the, uh, the uh, German appeal court asked whether land vehicles could be reduced to high price luxury sports cars. And the methodology chosen by the general court, that means to put the purpose and the aim of the product first, was somehow nuanced by the Court of Justice. It was in fact the general court since Aladdin judgment who has developed a long case law about these subcategories. And they have uh, managed to have a quite consistent case law. We had one case before the Grand Board as well, of which I was the rapporteur. The case reflects the trademark PELICO, P-E-L-L-I-C-O, about the question whether women's shoes would be a subcategory of footwear. And we said yes, and we developed a bit the criteria to apply. Now, the Court of Justice in this interesting Testarossa case added uh, that it would not be the market segment that would count. The market segment, well, adding, because of the function of origin. Um, and he uh, concluded 
that since cars are there to transport persons, a sports car is a car. Uh, the fact that it's luxury does not change, and the fact that it's high that it's high price expensive would not change it either. So the Court of Justice, which obviously mainly gave criteria without solving the individual case, but showed a tendency to say that um, there would not be a clear subcategory within the broad notion of land vehicles. At least high-priced luxury sports cars would not be a good subcategory. Now up to us to apply these findings and to see whether we should not still make a difference between, I don't know, trucks and personal vehicles or motorbikes or bicycles, I don't know. Huh? Let's see how to interpret this judgment. But it was an interesting judgment because it was only the second judgment by the Court of Justice on the question of subcategories. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see how this develops. Uh, let's uh, watch your case that is still pending <laughs> and see. Yeah, what we may decide. have some procedural issues there as well. But it has a, the, the case is really interesting case because it involves a lot of questions of proof of use. You know, the first question is. Is the use of used cars, secondhand cars, use of cars? Is the use of spare parts use of the product? You may remember that the famous Minimax case, which gave us guidance in so many cases, foresees that, no? But this was fire extinguished. Does this apply as well to cars? Oh, sorry, to Uh, other types of products which are more complex than fire extinguishers on a more general level. So, very interesting. So, we, we still wait as well. What the I think the Düsseldorf appeal court has not rendered its judgment yet, at least I'm not aware. Okay. Um, but let's stick to the um, grouping of goods and the uh, subcategories and um, broader terms. So, um, What would be your personal opinion or your advice to trademark practitioners? Should trademark applicants only use the most general broad terms like land vehicles and parts thereof in the future uh, following this Testarossa decision? Or should they also include more concrete terms like sports cars, uh, which would lead to longer lists of goods and services? I think a um, good lawyer will always try to specify in quite specific terms, what his clients actually is doing, what is his actual uh, product, and try to specify this in clear terms. He may then add further more general terms, but at least he covers his interest of the clients. People who think that, yeah, it's for free, and we may just add the class heading of the NIST classification, and then we cover everything. This is not the practice anymore, no, um, and it's not recommended. Yes, you can be broad, but if you're too broad, you will have a lot of oppositions and you will have to fight for um, products in which your client has no interest. So personally, I'm a fan of reducing the, the and to be clear in the list of goods and of services. I know it's not always easy, in particular in the field of services, And I know that as well when I try to reduce the scope of protection of these for these subcategories, and particularly 
for services can be quite challenging. But at least as well, you suggest to the um, opposition decision or cancellation division, cons opposition division or cancellation division already, uh, as well the subcategory, no? that we do not start to reinvent the wheel in maybe a market where we're not so secure. No, because in the end as well, it's the parties who must show us the categories and subcategories. Right. So I'm a fan of being more precise uh, in order to avoid conflicts and to protect well your interests. You remember as well that we had a recent judgment by the Court of Justice about um, the intention of use, about invalidity proceedings when the goods and services were not clear enough. For me, a bit surprising, the Court of Justice said that um, in the Sky Kick case, Sky Sky Kick case, that it would not be against the public order, uh, not to be clear and precise, and it would as well not fall under the function of the trademark to distinguish goods and services that are clear and precise. Now, um, there would be no absolute ground for invalidity to challenge list of goods and services which are not clear and precise. Mm. Mm. But on the other side, the Court of Justice said as well, it can be bad faith if you ask for a trademark which you do not want to use in its function of origin, where you in fact intend to do something else than using the trademark as a trademark. But so, sometimes, sometimes the applicants don't know uh, where they will go with the uh, um, with a trademark, for example, they ask for a trademark for clothing, and then maybe they also decide in five years from now that they also want to show, sell shoes. So then I would always try to preserve the interests of the client and also claim at least the broader general terms um, like footwear or so. Yes, uh, fine. Uh, obviously, if you want to have you have clothing, you may add, want to add shoes. You may to want to add handbags, uh, which is a different class. Uh, um, belts. You may want to add the retail store services for selling shoes, right. or footwear, or, or, or clothing. And uh, yes, you can expand. No, you would then need always a new. If you don't, if you have not thought well at the beginning, you will need a new trademark to <laughs> right. apply for now in order to have a secure way. However, um, probably you will not. I mean, probably you, you when you can't, when you start your business, you will already more or less know in which uh, areas you want to expand. Now, like uh, Sky in the Sky Kick case, who had the trademark for mousetraps. Nobody thinks that Sky will want to uh, use the trademark for mousetraps, even as a merchandising product. Right. Just like in class nine, where people usually claim class nine for software or computer hardware, and then there's also fire extinguishers. Also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the life-saving apparatus. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So when we are talking about um, protecting trademarks in the right classes, um, I'm just thinking about the metaverse trademarks. Um, these metaverse trademarks, they 
would typically, from my perspective, maybe fall in line because they're electronic files or so, but um, other people have other opinions about this. So uh, let me have your thoughts. And maybe you have already uh, gathered experience with uh, applicants who have uh, even different opinions. <laughs> so um, I did not have a case myself, even though uh, classification issues can be brought to the board to appeal if uh, you do not agree with the classification of the first instance examiner, you may appeal and challenge the classification because the classification may later narrow the scope of protection of your trademark. If you have a trademark for software in class nine, you don't have it for software as a service in class 42 because these are two different issues. And this is a trap of which you may, if you need to be well aware, because if it's about proof of use, then you may not use your trademark for software if you rent your software or if you render the software as a service, if you rent out the software. Also, be vigilant and uh, the client, your client should be vigilant and revise the list of goods and services from time to time. Good example is the area of metaverse, where we ourselves do not know it when I'm in a one of these consistency circles within the boards of appeal in which we discuss issues about classification and goods and services. And we discussed, discussed it there as well. So the practice of the office at the moment seems to be that if you have a perfumery, you do not protect the virtual perfumery, which in, its, in itself is strange, no? To think of virtual perfumery, articles of perfumery, virtual articles of perfumery, but apparently it exists you will not include that in perfumer in class three, but would be, would be probably in class, by right, depending, nine if it is downloadable. If it is not downloadable, but if it is, um, let's see, in the metaverse only, you don't download anything, then it may be in 41, we would then propose to have that as a, part of entertainment service, that as part of entertainment service, you would have as well, then in particular, the perfumery. It would not be acceptable for the office to only ask for virtual goods. I would like to know which type of virtual goods, handbags, perfumery, bicycles, cars, whatever. Um, if you want to retail these virtual goods would be class 35. If it would be renting the software for that, it would be software as a service in 42. So it can be quite complex, no? And where in the end we will end up, at the moment this is the approach the office has taken, and I think other offices seem to go in the same direction. But it's interesting to see in different blocks that the luxury sector of the market uh, as well look at this new market. You know, it is an additional way to protect the brand to have it present in the metaverse. Interesting thought. Uh, I didn't think of class 41 uh, before, but it's a valid argument, of course. Uh, these uh, The metaverse is more or less uh, the purpose is the entertainment at the moment, at yeah. least. 
So it's a very good thought uh, to have um, to protect or to also protect these trademarks in 41. Yes. Because yes, I, I I agree. I mean the the I'm not sure if the, the, these goods are really downloadable. If these right. Are downloadable because I understood that if it's in the metaverse, then it's in somewhere in the virtual world and not downloadable. But I'm not an expert in these games. I should ask my children. But we try to inform ourselves and we, we train ourselves as well. Right. Um, let's talk um, about the list of goods and services a little more because um, there can be legitimate reasons why lists of goods and services might be quite long. For example, if you have retail services and there is a retailer who wants to sell all different kinds of goods, like a department store or so, um, then this department store would have to protect the trademark for retail services related to, and then all different kinds of goods, like a very long list. And um, there's another case where there might be a reason for long lists. Um, some of the more broader um, class headings, like gardening articles in class 21, or let's say in 21, for example, articles for animals, are also considered uh, too vague by the EUIPO. And so people have to then choose, for example, aquaria, bird cages, brushes for grooming horses, and and so on. So to to have a concrete list of all different kinds of articles that would fall under these broad terms. Um, so the trademark practitioners would really love to have um, the class headings more often, or to have shorter lists of goods and services. Um, what would be your personal opinion, your advice uh, to trademark practitioners from a perspective of the boards of appeal so, dealing with cases where the office has decided that certain general terms are maybe accepted or not accepted? I mean, we all understand that the class heading has not does not have the function to define the scope of protection of goods. The class heading is a tool to classify certain goods in the NIST classification. And the NIST classification as such is a tool to classify the goods in order to be able to find them eventually as well to define the fees. No, it's more administrative purpose. Um, to think that the class setting is a good way to define the goods and services um, I think it was not never a good idea. Um, uh, the office has done a, quite a considerable effort with taxonomy to offer as well further goods and services. I think we have a pool of terms of something like 60,000, 70,000 indications of goods and services, which have been defined and tested and classified and harmonized with other offices. And you find this in our uh, platforms and uh, databases in order to help parties to find the appropriate term for the business. Uh, if you're, and I understand that garden article is very broad and uh, may end up in many products, even in different classes. So, which is not so appropriate, not if you have a general term where the goods that a broad term where the goods uh, refer to different classes, it's not so appropriate to have it in one class only because of the ambiguity that it may create what is included, what is not included. And uh, therefore, if your client does aquaria 
and uh, all the other products you mentioned, then it's already quite diverse, no? like quite varied. Not every um, producer of garden articles needs such a broad term like garden articles. With respect to retail store services, still somehow different. You remember that the retail store service was first accepted by practical judgment in 2006 of the Court of Justice. And the German courts have asked the Court of Justice uh, the trademark for Praktika, which was the name of, or which is still the name, I think, of a DIY business, uh, a DIY article uh, store. And the Court of Justice thought that this was acceptable, DIY articles, retail store of DIY. You will not need for the retail store services to exactly identify every product that is sold. You can operate with more broader terms. Um, the other day I had a case where it was clearer to understand the scope of protection of the retail store service if we added the class numbers of the goods to which the retail store service referred. And the office may still probably often refuse uh, to mention uh, the class numbers in the list of the goods in the context of retail store services. In the board, we have accepted it, no? mm -hmm. that uh, you can a class because it may be important to render the retail store service more precisely. Uh, my favorite example are the gloves. You can have gloves, I think, in eight to 10 different classes. <laughs> yes. No? Depending whether it's for clothing, whether it's for security, whether it's for sports, whether it's for a surgery, you can have according to the purpose of the glove. And, the, and then this may have as well an inf influence on the type of retail store. No? It's not the same to have retail store for motorcycles or for surgery or for general clothing. No? So we accepted the class numbers. And I think, I hope this will convince the office further. So let's talk about another topic that we mentioned in the introduction, evergreening of trademarks. Um, that's always also a hot topic, at least in my opinion. Um, proof of use always is important and evergreening of trademarks is uh, like, let's say, a subtopic of this more broader topic and is also quite interesting. Um, If uh, the listeners don't know what I mean by evergreening of trademarks is to refile mostly identical trademarks uh, to avoid having to use the trademarks in order to enforce the trademarks. Uh, so, for example, filing the same trademark every four years uh, to avoid the um, novelty grace period, basically uh, the, the, the use grace period um, and to expire. So how do you deal with these kinds of um, trademarks that are refiled? Uh, how do you deal with the evergreening of trademarks at the level of the boards of appeal? I think we should have uh, the legislator look, we, the legislator should look into this question because somehow in our impression, this legal situation which we have at the moment is somehow unsatisfactory. Uh, if we have a normal case, the early trademark is a trademark everybody knows 
for the last 50 years, and we see that the filing date is three years old, we think, hmm, what happened here? He did not have a prediction before. But obviously, a smart opponent will not base itself on the 50 trademarks of the last 50 years or the 20 trademarks of the last 50 years. He will probably only file the trademark of the last, the last trademark he has. And then we cannot request, the, the applicant cannot request proof of use for trademark, which is only registered for the last three years, even though we know that it's a refiling. Uh, we had thought at one moment that the notion of uh, trademark in the context of proof of use would be an economic term that we would say that um, a trademark that is registered for more than five years can be open to proof of use, that uh, we then take the notion of trademark as an economic term. And if the trademark is in fact refiled several times, then we need to request, it's possible to request proof of use. But the general court told us that this is not the correct way to do. The general way court told us that the correct way to do is a request for, of bad faith against the earlier trademark. That means the applicant who wants to challenge the opponent because his early trademark is a trademark, the fruit of refiling, has to attack in separate proceedings the earlier trademark in bad faith proceedings. And in the end, we see that this is not very frequent. And it's then still not automatic. It's not just simply because there is a refiling of a, the same, you said the same or similar trademark. If it's a similar trademark, it's maybe a modernization. Maybe the list of goods and services is not identical. So it's not so easy to then, it's not automatic at least to come to the result of bad faith. No, not really. There has been a case like the, I think the Pelican case where the logo was changed just a little bit and the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, decided that this little change was actually a modernization of the logo. And so yeah. it was not a um, bad faith application, right? Exactly. Pelican said they needed to uh, modernize uh, the trademark and refine because of the 125 years of Pelican. And then we said, yeah, fine, every five years they need to refile because of a modernized trademark. Right. There's another interesting topic um, that you have recently dealt with, the scope of an appeal. So when somebody files an appeal, what can you actually decide on? So what uh, are the boards of appeal allowed to decide on? You've recently pinned a really long and useful decision in Jules Gens against Jules. And I will put a link to the decision in the show notes so people can read this very long and detailed decision. Um, what are the possible options for the actual scope of an appeal? And what did you decide in this decision? Yeah, this is a bit unusual decision. I admit people call my colleagues call it the book because it's so long and we even have added uh, an index. Um, yes, it's true. It's an unusual decision because we had uh, an internal debate, but not already diverging case law, but we had an internal debate. This was my contribution to the debate uh, about the scope of examination in terms of Article 27.2 of the new delegated regulations. And the article is not clear. 
because it says, it reads that in inter-parties proceedings, like opposition, the examination of the appeal, or as the case may be the cross-appeal, shall be restricted to the grounds invoked in the statement of grounds or the cross-appeal. Um, this is not clear. What does it mean? Shall be restricted to the grounds invoked in the statement of grounds. Um, matters of law is clarified later. Need to be raised by our office or by our own initiative when they concern essential procedural requirements or where it is necessary for the correct application of the law. This is clear. But still, what is what are the grounds invoked in the statement of grounds in in and the regulation could be read in different ways. So in the case at hand, um, the opponent had five early trademarks, three UK marks or two UK marks and three EU TMs. And he won with respect to the first UK mark. So now when we decided upon the case, UK was out of the European Union. And uh, we thought and we, we took the decision in line with the case law of the General Court as we understood it at that moment, in line with the general approach of the office, that if a trademark is not valid at the moment of our Board of Appeal decision, there's no confusion, and then obviously we reject the opposition, at least for this ground. A side remark, this decision uh, is pending before the General Court, and the question of UK marks is not finally settled yet, because there's a divergent case law of the General Court. Uh, there are court judgments which take the view that it is was sufficient that the earlier trademark was valid at the moment of the opposition and does not need to be valid at the moment of the Board of Appeal decision. And um, the office has filed an appeal with the Court of Justice and has managed that the Court of Justice has accepted the appeal to be decided, to, to decide on the disappeal. You know, maybe that the Court of Justice systematically rejects all appeals to the Court of Justice because um, they have become much more strict. But this is a question which will be dealt with by the Court of Justice. So now, in this children's case, as I just said, with not only UK marks, but as well European Union trademarks. Now, the first instance did not decide on the EU TMs until now. And you had as well likelihood of confusion and reputed marks. Until now, the first instance had only decided on likelihood of confusion with respect to UK mark. Reputation was raised only with respect to United Kingdom. So we took the view that in the, our board, that when Article 27, second paragraph says, grounds invoked in the statement of grounds would limit us, then this can only mean that this applies if we decide as a board of appeal. 
that means as an appeal instance. However, the basic regulation Article 71 gives us more options, gives us as well the option to decide in the shoes of the first instance. And obviously the parties have not filed any argument in the statement of grounds if the first instance did not decide on the other grounds. Obviously the um, appellant, the opponent, uh, the, the applicant who had lost because of one UK right, did not discuss in the statement of grounds the other earlier trademarks because they were not examined yet. So our board decided that um, Article 27.2 would only limit uh, the Board of Appeal to the extent with that we decide as a Board of Appeal, as an appeal instance, but not if we continue with the further issues. The question whether we are allowed to, or whether we should decide on the further issues is a question of discretion, which we have to, ex to exercise. If, for example, proof of use is an issue or reputation, then as a general tendency, we would remit first to the first instance, because it's a bit unfair to take a decision on proof of use, in particular if it's not sufficient, for the first time before the board's appeal. Because later before the general court, uh, you will not be allowed to add further evidence. So that's fairer to have a two-step, two like a two-step uh, procedure, have the first decision of the first instance of the opposition division or cancellation division on previews, and then uh, come back to the board of appeal if necessary. We did not do it in the Jules case because we considered UK is out if reputation is limited to the UK and it's limited to the UK. Nothing, not, uh, not, not a lot to do. We can immediately close the case and then uh, the life can go on. Huh? And we don't need to remit as a question of principle. We have this liberty, this discretion to do. Um, we did discuss this question in the Boards of Appeal whether we have the liberty or not, to what extent we have the liberty. If we need first to decide on the appeal before we switch to another ground, if we can go immediately to the, to the other grounds. So um, we had a lot of discussion always, and therefore the Drew Jens case is so long because I took up all the case law with respect to the competency of the Boards of Appeal. Uh, and I quoted even the parts of the judgments that referred to the different questions. I introduced each judgment with a small summary of the procedural situation, and I harmonized the terminology and the way to quote um, provisions with our way to do it. That means um, the applicant in the children's decision is the applicant as the applicant of a trademark and not as in the terminology of the general court, the applicant who applied before the general court. So it's easier to read. So it's a long decision because you have a lot of case law quoted there, but this makes it interesting as well to read, you know, to reread the old judgments. Yes, thank you very and much. We discuss this and we discuss this still internally. We will have one of these coherence reports and the objective is to 
have a document, a paper, a kind of internal um, uh, to allow as well parties to know what we think inside of the board's appeal, what the parties should raise in the in the statement of grounds or in the cross appeal. So when do you think will the court of first instance decide on the case? What is your your opinion? I don't know because it was a it, the um, general court took it quite seriously and has upgraded the case to an enlarged board and had as well an oral hearing on that in that question, which already took place. I heard from my colleagues that the main issues to that were discussed were the issues of the UK mark. Whether UK mark, whether we can ignore UK marks that are not valid anymore because of Brexit. Maybe they want to correct, I don't know, the, the case law uh, before the Court of Justice announced the judges. I don't know. And let's see, I don't know, maybe uh, I hope it will be still in 2023. I don't think it will be in 22. I hope it will be early 23. Okay. But this paper, we will, independently of this judgment, we are working on it. And we hope as well to decide on a version um, later this year or early next year. It's a very complex issue because we talk always of very different cases. And uh, obviously the recommendation would be to be clear in your statement of grounds or the cross appeal. Um, what you attack and what are the points, what are the findings of the decision you attack? No? Do you attack only one trademark or do you attack the findings for all your trademarks on which the first instance has taken view? Do you attack the contested decision on all the goods of which on which the decision has taken view? Or do you in fact limit somehow the scope to those goods which are core to your interests. You can, as a party, focus on certain trademarks or on certain mm -hmm. goods which are more important for you. And this can be a strategic decision you take. Right. Yeah, it will be an interesting read for the trademark yeah. practitioners for two reasons. For one reason being what happens to UK trademarks <laughs> as opposing yeah. trademarks. And the secondly, of course, um, what is the scope of the boards of appeal, how can they decide? And yes, yeah. um, and so that would give us an immediate hint uh, how to how to appeal, how to write the grounds for the appeal, right? We have one issue I would still to, like to mention, uh, which is a bit outside of uh, the scope of the decision, which is conciliation mediation. Um, I don't know if you know, if you have heard of these services which are offered by the Boards of Appeal and which we are working on. We are trying to build up a mediation center. And we are already quite successful with mediation or conciliation. The difference between mediation and conciliation being that the mediation is done by an external mediator. That means external to the board, not to the office. It would be someone from the office for example, someone from the board of appeal by a different board will act as a mediator and is more formal and has a certain uh, rules of mediation. And conciliation is something I can do as a as a conciliator, as a rapporteur of my own case, which is not as deep as mediation. 
but as well can give good results. And um, don't hesitate to think of this other opportunity as we say in the Board's Appeal, a good decision is not always, the, a decision is not always the most efficient and best way to close an appeal. Sometimes an agreement is better and uh, pay attention to those. And there's one last thing I wanted to mention. Um, you are um, a frequent writer of different books, and the most recent book is Concise European Trademark Law. So I can uh, place a link to the book uh, in the show notes as well, so people can look at this. It might be very helpful to see your views on the different case law. It is certainly an interesting book. It, I, obviously, it's my personal opinion, and uh... Obviously, you have other good books as well. Consistency reports are much better. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, thank you very much for being on this podcast with me and for your very valuable insights for all the trademark practitioners out there. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure and uh, hope we keep in touch. Yes, thank you so much. Keep in touch. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.